Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good morning, everybody, or afternoon or evening, wherever you are on December the 15th. It's noon in California. Uh, And in America today, there's more and more talk of the deaths in the corona 19, the the, the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, We're up above 300,000 now. Uh, One uh, piece asks, how do we grieve 300,000 lives? There's a lot of talk of death and of grieving. But there's another kind of epidemic, a pandemic, which is less discussed, which we're going to talk about today, not COVID-19. But the epidemic of uh, African-American lives between 2000 and 2018, 162,000 African-Americans lost their lives to violence in America. Um, This horrifying statistic um, is pointed out in Elliot Curry's new book, A Peculiar Indifference, The Neglected Toll of Violence on uh, Black America. Uh, Elliot, Curry is a professor in Southern California, and at the moment, he's my neighbor in Berkeley. Uh, Elliot, welcome. Uh, Your book is very disturbing. How should or could we be thinking of of all these deaths of African-Americans in the context of COVID? Well, First of all, Andrew, thanks for having me. It's great to be here and great to be your neighbor here in Berkeley, at least for a while. Um, You know, I think the first and most important thing about uh, thinking about these deaths, and as you correctly point out, between 2000 and 2018, there were over 160,000 of them. The most important thing to me is, first of all, to put that into some kind of human perspective. We do tend to ignore it. We it's a problem that we see when it appears in the newspaper as some kind of a dramatically horrific weekend of violence in some major American city, whether it's Chicago or it's Baltimore or New Orleans or what have you. But we don't think about the magnitude of this problem. But think of it this way, as I point out in the book, that 162,000 black Americans who have died as a result of violence is roughly equal to the population of the capital city of Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, which is a pretty big place, right? So if you had taken every single person in that city and wiped them out, lined them up against a wall and shot them, that's about the number of people that we're talking about here. I can remember, you know, you mentioned COVID. How do we think about this in the context of COVID? I can remember when our our COVID death toll in the United States was around 50,000, 60,000, which was really, really bad. And I can remember how convulsed, in a sense, our society was, and how this was hammered at us again and again and again in the media as a tremendous tragedy and as an enormous public health problem. But nobody really did that. 
about this other public health crisis that we're talking about? Well, fortunately, someone did. You did, Elliot. It, I did. It's uh, extremely disturbing and, and very readable. I guess I would call it, uh, you, you are a, an academic, but it, it's not really an academic book. It's very readable. It's very accessible. The first chapter in particular, the introduction and the first chapter are particularly disturbing. Uh, you say a, a peculiar indifference, uh, particularly disturbing for anyone reading it. Uh, very briefly, describe this, uh, this, this terrible death toll. Where does it come from? Is it mostly, and I know this is a, perhaps a politically incorrect statement, but is it moaned mostly uh, black on black crime? Um, or is it more complicated than that? It mostly is, although I have to say that I've never liked that term black on black crime, and neither does anybody else really. And it's become kind of this odd political football. And one of the reasons I wrote this book, frankly, was to get away from the politicization, in a sense, of this issue. Um, to the extent that we have looked at it at all, it's been as this kind of football that we kick back and forth between different kinds of political ideologies. Meanwhile, you know, nobody's doing anything about the problem and people, as I point out in the book, people keep on dying. And I want to keep the people from dying. Uh, most of the uh, black Americans who die as a result of violence uh, and have over the last 20 years have indeed been killed by other black folks, and the question is, how do you explain that? And I wrote the book in part, right, because there's already a narrative about that that's coming, frankly, from the political right. Again, getting back to the politicization of this question, and, you know, blaming this on all kinds of things that, to me, have very little to do with the actual roots of this problem. And uh, when you say the political right, we're, of course, particularly talking about the outgoing president of the United States, who is who, who claims at least to have been the greatest president for American Af for African Americans since Lincoln, which is obviously um, ludicrous, comical, but uh, certainly he has invested some of his time in discussing his response to uh, to, 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 to African American victims of of crime. Before we get to that, um, Elliot. Um, I'd like your take also on Black Lives Matter, because, of course, 2020 has not only been the year of COVID, but the year of Black Lives Matter. Are you um, satisfied with the amount of intellectual investment on the part of the Black Lives Matter in, in the tragedy that you describe in your book? Well, you know, I think that Black Lives Matter has a particular history uh, that came out of, of their very, very necessary protest against police violence. And as I say in the book, the thing for me that's important to understand is that that's one half of the picture and the other half of the picture is what is sometimes called intracommunal violence within the black community. Both are tremendously important. And frankly, I wouldn't want to tell the Black Lives Matter folks what they should be thinking about or what they should be prioritizing. Should there be an equivalent Black Lives Matter movement less focused on um, the violence, the criminal violence of the police against African-Americans and on this broader issue that you focus on in your book? Well, you see, I wouldn't think I would put it that way to split the two. Again, a big, a, a 
big purpose of the book was to put those two problems together, right? And to say that both the police violence and the communal violence are part of the same problem and they have the same structural roots, right? They both come out of conditions of oppression and marginalization and inequality that we've really understood for a very, very long time. And I don't want to see those things separated. I want to see them put together. And I think, you know, within the Black Lives Matter movement, there are folks who focus, you know, more on the police violence. And there are some other folks who have talked a great deal about uh, the communal violence. And my sense is they tend to take the same position that I do, that these are part and parcel of the same issue. Um, Elliot, the standard conventional narrative of American history is one of this move, this march towards justice. Uh, Martin Luther King made a very famous series of remarks about this. But reading your book, one got the sense that the arc, at least of American history, doesn't bend towards justice. I was particularly disturbed with your, and, and I found this incredibly um, enlightening and interesting, your, your coverage of uh, Du Bois uh, as this remarkable 19th century African-American scholar and the fact that what he observed in uh, uh, the, the, the deaths of, uh, of African-Americans in the 19th century hasn't changed much over the last 200 years. Uh, du Bois, of course, is very famous as the author of The Souls of Black Folk. Um, but he's also, and, and this is, I think, uh, where you focus on Du Bois's work in your book, uh, on his more empirical sociological work on, 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 uh, on a book that was called The Philadelphia Negro. Talk a little bit about Du Bois, his work, and why it's so resonant today, uh, you know, more than 100 years after his death. Well, you know, that's a really good question, Andrew, because I think that Du Bois, Du Bois in general, uh, we pay far too little attention to this guy who was an extraordinary figure, uh, really uh, beginning in the late 19th century and continuing well, well into the, into the 20th century, and really a tremendously multi-talented, brilliant guy and very dedicated guy. That book, The Philadelphia Negro, which I do spend some time discussing in my book, uh, was in my view and in the view of some other people lately, probably one of the absolute classic best works of American social science of its time. And it was absolutely unfairly uh, neglected for years and years and years. I think in the last oh, maybe five years or so, people are beginning to recognize that this was a, a massively uh, powerful accomplishment that told us a whole lot about urban life generally, about social change in America, and above all, about race, and about the impact of discrimination on people's lives and on the lives of communities. It's a remarkable, a remarkable book, well worth anybody's attention, even now, you know, more than 120 years later. How much has changed, Elliot, between the, the Philadelphia uh, that Du Bois described and the Philadelphia of 2020 or the Chicago of 2020 or the Baltimore of 2020 or the St. Louis of 2020? You know, there's ways in which things have changed and unfortunately too many ways in which they've stayed the same, right? I mean, we have to acknowledge that the civil rights movement 
and the way in which it put an end to some of the more overt practices of, of Jim Crow America was, was really a magnificent uh, piece of social action. You know, things happened, things did change. Many of the things that Du Bois talked about applied to every black person in Philadelphia. You know, the, the ceilings on what you could do, on what young people could accomplish, for example, were so stark back then, and they are less so. Now, and they're less so because of the incredible work that was done for generations uh, in the civil rights movement. But the continuity, which, as you say, is, is very, very troubling, uh, is that some of the most basic structural conditions that uh, really limit the lives, supports, opportunities, the possibility for whole communities to thrive much of that still exists and in some ways arguably has even become worse, particularly because of big economic changes that we as a society have not grappled with. Uh, Elliot, um, you use a word uh, that I don't always know what it means in your book, and it's the title of a new book also by Isabel Wilkerson, Cast. You, are you, do you believe that America post-slavery is a caste system and that the, the world you're describing is a consequence of this caste system? I think it may be a consequence of the system. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't think that for me, I would really apply caste as a term to describe America in the 21st century. I think it was Post-slavery, yes, throughout the Jim Crow era, that was in many ways the essence of the Jim Crow system in, in this country. It basically was a system in which you, you know, not just a class system, but a system in which the fact of your race put certain kinds of absolute limits on what you could do, who you could do it with, where you could go. That, and, and of course, it was enshrined in the law. And that, to me, is the big difference between, say, when Du Bois wrote or when some of the other writers that I talk about in my book, like Allison Davis and John Dollard, wrote their book, books about caste in the American South. That was a situation in which racial distinctions were built into the law. Well, that's no longer true. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal that it's no longer true because that's really part of the essence of caste. So what we now have is a system of extraordinary harsh inequality. And I think it's really, really important to stress how harsh this system is. So as I point out in the book, when you try to compare, say, impoverished black communities in America with poor white communities, you can't really even make the comparison because the poorest communities in black America are so much poorer in so many different ways than otherwise comparable white communities, that the comparison is really almost... Yeah, and it's interesting because increasingly, and we've had a number of shows about this, is an increasing focus on the plight, and it is a genuine plight of, of, of white communities. Another yeah. book you cite in the book, in your book, um, is another very influential sociological treatise, An American Dilemma, The Negro, the Negro Problem and Modern Democracy by Gunnar Myrdal. Another very influential book describing a situation which, again, hasn't changed very much. If, if Myrdal was to 
reappear in America today he was originally, I think, from Scandinavia. What 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 changes would he see? Well, that's right. He did indeed come from Sweden, and uh, I think he found America both fascinating and appalling when when he came. Like most, like most people coming here, from <laughs> onwards, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think he would indeed say, and in fact, he did uh, say in the 1960s when he came back and wrote another book, which I talk about a lot in my book, which was called Challenge to Affluence, which was a very well-known book when it was written back in the 1960s. People have kind of forgotten about it now, but he had already come back in the 1960s after producing An American Dilemma in the 1940s during World War II, and he already saw changes. And he predicted some of those changes in an American dilemma. Myrdal believed, for example, that overt racial discrimination, legalized racial discrimination, the caste system, in effect, to get back to your earlier question, he thought that was on the way out. But he was afraid of what was going to remain. And when he came back in the 1960s, he pointed out that, yeah, this is a different world now when it comes to caste. But the economic forces that are conspiring to keep black Americans down at the bottom of what is increasingly a harsh division within the society between haves and have-nots, those forces are still very much with us. And the problem is that he couldn't really see that we were going to seriously tackle those problems. Elliot, you, you cite um, another interesting and very influential uh, a study by uh, Judith and Peter Blau, the cost of inequality. What is the cost of inequality? Not to African Americans, but to all Americans. To this, the inequality that you're describing in the book, the fact that between 2000 and 2018, 162,000 African Americans lost their lives. To, to whites who aren't affected by this, what's the cost? Well, I think, first of all, uh, it would be inaccurate to suggest that whites aren't affected by this, uh, particularly because of the, if nothing else, right, if nothing else, this is an extraordinarily expensive problem, right? Even if you look at it in the most crass economic terms, the fact that we have this level of violence anywhere in our society, and keep in mind, the level of violence we have in America for everybody of all races is extraordinarily high, as I point out in the book, compared to other advanced industrial societies. When you have a violence problem on that level, the cost of trying to deal with it, mostly after the fact, mount up very, very quickly. And it's the cost of policing, the cost of incarceration, most of all the medical costs that are associated with this. So we're talking about billions and billions of dollars. We're talking about billions, actually, probably yeah, over time. Yeah. But we're certainly talking about money that then can't be spent for other more constructive. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is that the Congress has been quite comfortable throwing trillions of dollars at COVID. Uh, but the idea of, say, spending one or two or three trillion dollars on confronting the original sin and all the problems of racial inequality and racial injustice in America, even even if Biden controlled Congress, would be unthinkable. Uh, as I suggested at the top of the show, Elliot, uh, 
Today, December 15th, we're confronting these 300,000 COVID deaths, but we're also, for most of us at least, I think watching this show, we are cheerfully recognizing that Joe Biden will indeed be the next president. Even McConnell has now congratulated Biden. And today, Biden selected Pete Buttigieg to lead the transportation department. If Joe Biden's watching, I'm not sure if he is, he's probably busy with some other stuff today. If he is, um, uh, Elliot, what what can and should Biden and the Democrats be doing to confront this? The last section of your book focuses on fixes, on solutions to this crisis, and, and, and they're ambitious and structural. What is the way to address this crisis? This, this death crisis in African-Americans. This I wouldn't call it a holocaust, but something close to that in some ways. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, and I think there's, you know, there's two ways of approaching your question, which of course is absolutely central. One is the question of what we really ought to be doing if we could do whatever we wanted. And the other is the question that I think you started out with, which is, what can we do given yeah let's let's talk about that because even though you and i are in the people's republic of berkeley uh, we, we spend our lives dreaming but unfortunately there is a world outside berkeley so we can't do that let's be realistic here Elliot. yeah yeah well let's be that and i think you know one of the most interesting possibilities that we have uh consists of the range of things that a president can do even without a supportive Congress. So that even if uh, we do lose this Senate runoff in Georgia and Republicans uh, who want to do nothing whatsoever, believe me, about this problem, continue to control the Senate, there's a lot that a president can do by, by having the federal government do things that it gets to do without asking anybody. Uh, for example, you can do things like raising the minimum wage for all people who are federal contractors. That's that's somebody. Uh, that's something that I think many people are beginning to talk about. Another is other kinds of federal investment that we can do without necessarily going and having a a new giant appropriation for it. The central thing, and I argue this in the book, the central thing that we need is to begin to use public resources to build up the capacity of communities to offer real opportunities and real supports, finally, to that stratum of the African-American population that has been so dispossessed for many, many generations. It's not rocket science to do that. We know how to do that. We know that it involves creating jobs that pay decent wages, for example, at its base. But there are lots of ways in which the federal government can begin to do that. I'm particularly interested in the idea of of developing federal strategies around something that looks like it's based on the principles of what people call the Green New Deal, right? That is, we begin to develop a federal employment program that's directed at creating really good jobs, including jobs for people who may not have had one for a long, long time or ever. Uh, doing some of that absolutely necessary work of creating a society that's going to be sustainable um, for the 21st century. Right, and I think uh, your fixes do make this a broad social problem. You you talk about jobs, education, healthcare, public investment, wages, all of which we've covered in the show. Of course, if we don't do this, we're back in the 19th century 
And you end your book with a quote from Du Bois, um, a kind of warning. And I'm, I, I do want to read it because I think it's very profound. Du Bois wrote, other centuries looking back upon the culture of the 19th would have the right to suppose that if in a land of freemen, eight millions of human beings were found to be dying of disease, the nation would cry out with one voice, heal them. If they were staggering on in ignorance, it would cry, train them. If they were harming themselves and others by crime, it would cry, guide them. And then he goes on, if in the heyday of the greatest of the world's civilizations, it is possible for one people to slowly murder one another by economic and social exclusion, if the consummation of such a crime could be possible in the 20th century, then our civilization is vain and the Republic is a mockery and a farce. So what Du Bois is suggesting is in the 21st century, he couldn't even imagine the 21st century, writing at the end of the 19th century, uh, America will appear a mockery and a farce unless it addresses these issues. Would you, would you echo Du Bois, a mockery and a farce? Yeah, I mean, that was pretty strong language, uh, but it's one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to Du Bois as a thinker and as, as a citizen, you know. He was willing to call out uh, this extraordinary disparity. I, even at the end of the 19th century, when we were a lot richer country with a lot fewer resources than we have now, what he's doing there is calling out the disparity between what we could do, right, with the resources that we have and the fact that we're not doing it. And by not doing it, we are killing people. And we're not killing just a few people. We're killing lots and lots of people. So, yeah, absolutely. That resonates with me. That sense of, of the unfairness and, in a sense, the, the, the absolute stupidity on one. Yeah, as you say in your book, 162,000 people we're killing. I think your book is a marvelous read. Uh, I don't know if I'd use the word marvelous. It's a, it's, it's, it's a bracing read, an important read. It's been on a number of the best books of 2020, including the New York Times, A Peculiar Indifference, must read, I think, for anyone who doesn't know about this subject. Most of us still don't know everything. Uh, I think it's also a reminder that we need to revisit uh, Du Bois, read his The Souls of Black Folk, and particularly The Philadelphia Negro. In addition to Du Bois, um, uh, Elliot, what else should people be reading? I know uh, you and I are both stuck if that's the right word, in Berkeley in these strange times in mid-December 2020. Is there another book people might read in addition to yours and Du Bois? Boy, that puts me in pretty, in, in, uh, in pretty upstanding company there. It's great. Um, yeah, there are actually, there's actually a few books, but uh, the one that I've mentioned before is one that I cite in my book. You know, there's a little section at the end, for those who want to read it, of, uh, of further readings that that have really meant something to me and that I learned from. And I'd say the most recent of those is a book called From Here to Equality by uh, William Darity and uh, his wife, uh, Kirsten Mullen, which is about uh, African-American reparations, which I touch on in the book. I'm not an expert on the reparations issue, but I've been thinking about it for a long time. Basically, I think it's a no-brainer that we need to be in the reparations business, and I'm really delighted that Congress has begun uh, in certain minor ways to take up this consideration. But it's a remarkable book. It's by far the most comprehensive and thoughtful study 
of the idea of reparations and argument for uh, why they're necessary, why they're justified, and also how you would do it. Um, well worth, well worth the reading. Well, and, and your book is well worth the read and you're well worth listening to. Elliot Curry, a scholar who is dedicated at least his intellectual life to revealing the, the horrors of American history. Uh, I want to wish you a happy new year, Elliot. I hope 2021 will be a happier year for America than 2020 on many levels, politically and certainly in terms of COVID. And I look forward to having you back on the show again when you have a new study out, a new book revealing these terrible truths about American history. Great. Thanks for having me, Andrew. And you have a great new year, too. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.